Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted by the first of each month. The content of the podcasts is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Traps on the Path, A Guide for the Unwary Traveler. The talk was given by Karuna Fedorshak on July 18, 2019, in Prescott, Arizona. Karuna is a singer in the musical duo Small Change, which performs Western Bell music. She is author of Parenting, A Sacred Task, and one of the editors of Sahaja Magazine, a publication on Western Bell practice. Until she became a mother, she was a member of LGB, which was the first band to perform Western Bell music. Karuna Fedorshak. In the 1970s, Lee, well, the community had, had this study course, this 12-week study course, and it consisted of 12 cassettes of Lee, you know, giving talks. And then there was written material that was generated by students, I believe, that, that went with each week. And the idea was that if you were a new student, you, you know, you would do this study course. So recently, we're working with a lot of that early material, including these, these uh, 12 talks that were the study course material. And on one of them, on week five, as part of the talk, not the whole talk, Lee started to, to, to speak about um, traps on the path. He named six, and he kind of moved through them pretty quickly. He didn't, he didn't like super elaborate, but he made some key points, you know, traps on the path and always relevant. Basically, these traps are like he's talking about sort of the pitfalls of the workings of our mind and ego together. I will, I will tell you uh, what, those, what those six traps are, and, and then we'll go, you know, I'll go back over them in more, in more detail. Yeah, I think that these, the, the things that he's calling traps on the path are, they're kind of like a function of, of the um, conditioning and the beliefs and the, the life experience that we bring with us to the path. And... So in that sense, it's not like they aren't things that show, you know, can show up anywhere in life. But it seems like on the path, there's a chance to, to pierce the, the root of these, you know, these kind of errors of thinking or errors of being. These are the six traps, traps on the path. And, you know, he, he just like he was just speaking stream of consciousness in this talk, as he pretty much always did. And um, it wasn't like he like headlined this and said, now I'm going to speak about traps on the path, or that he even named them like I'm naming them. I just like read through and I kind of, I kind of named them. So the first trap is um, unrealistic expectations of ourselves, others, and situations. So like preconceived ideas, basically, that we bring with us to the path and ideas about what we, what it, it, like what we think it means to be spiritual or what it looks like, what somebody who's practicing should look like. And, and there's more to it than that, and we'll get into that. And then the tendency to idolize, tendency to idolize, which Lee, was, Lee spoke about as making other people our, our spiritual heroes. 
but to me, that's just kind of one, one aspect of what I see as this tendency of mind to, um, to idolize. It's like we're, you know, and, and often we, we flip. So we're, you know, we're holding some, something or somebody in very high esteem. And then with the right set of circumstances, that same person or situation can be just like under our feet, you know? So it's kind of like this, this, uh, um, mercurial way we have of, of relating in, in life, the tendency to idolize. The third one, mistaking intellectual understanding or the right form or activity for genuine experience. So with this one, it, it kind of, it seems to me like this is where we all have to start. It's like we don't, you know, we don't know any better when we begin. It's like we, we, we must put in the time to practice in order for our relationship to the Dharma to deepen. But, you know, a, tra- a trap that he was pointing to is that you could think because you understand and even because you're doing the right form that you, you actually, that that's it, you know, that's the end. Um, that was number three. Number four is thinking we're a special case. <laughs> this one just... Uh, you know, he just talks about how everybody who comes to the path has this idea that they're, that they're unique. And, and in fact, we are unique in an essential way, but in the way that ego kind of holds it, a special case, we're all actually the same, according to, to Lee and, this, and his description of this trap, thinking we're a special case. And number five is getting seduced by peak experience. Um, slash avoiding functional life. So this too, I would, he was speaking to his young Sangha, this too for me, I would really broaden out to be like, again, the dividing mind that decides that this, you know, this spiritual activity over here is like better or more important than, you know, doing the dishes or taking care of my child or, you know, uh, cleaning my house, getting the car fixed or something like that. So getting seduced by peak experience and avoiding functional life. And then the last one is, um, of the six he named, was uh, needing approval for our work. And this I think of as really kind of coming from the child inside of us that doesn't have, doesn't have a sense of our own, like a, a sense of ourselves such that we can know what we're doing and trust what we're doing. So we, we're seeking approval, you know. And again, it, you know, he, he's talking about seeking approval for our work, but I think we can probably all think of instances in life where we're seeking approval in situations you know, instead of kind of relying on our own, our own sense of ourselves. So that's the six, kind of speeding through there. I really felt like, you know, studying this material more closely, like there, it, it's not, there's not such clear delineations between these six, like there's, there's just fuzzy edges. But it's, it's use, it is useful to kind of define, you know, define each of those maybe facets of, of one issue, which is, you know, the functioning of mind and ego. I also noticed in, in studying this talk of his that there were certain principles or ideas that kind of threaded through all six. And so I just wanted to mention those before, before I start talking about all six. Yeah, so there, like, I noticed that there were like a handful of ideas that seemed to thread through, through all of the traps. And um, those were the idea of, of that ego and its drive to survive is like a mechanism that we all have. Like we're all, we're all subject to the, the, you know, the, the survival mode of ego. And underlying that, Lee says, is, is the fear of death, you know, the fear of extinction. 
and you know, but it shows up in life as this, you know, this this drive to survive to win. So um, this mechanism that we all have, ego and its drive to survive, is one thing that kind of threads through all of them. And another one, which I I can't think of. Um, like another kind of traditional literature where this, well, except maybe the work, <laughs> where I came, I've come across this, but this idea of um, having no center of gravity, like the way I, I remember Lee talking about this in the early days and the way he talks about it in this, in this talk, is that we change our behavior depending on who we're with. And I remember when I first heard that idea from him, I didn't, like I, I had never thought about that before. Like it was something, it was in a way, it was something that I, I did so automatically that I didn't give it a thought. And one of the things that, that he, he pointed out in some other situation, I remember him saying that ego is flattered by its own reflection. This idea of our, the way that we change ourselves kind of depending on who we're with and part of what we're doing when we do that is to kind of make ourselves, like it's very unconscious to make ourselves attractive to you know, the ego of the person <laughs> that we're relating with, like they have this way of talking, they, they like this kind of conversation, etc. So no center of gravity is something that, that sort of threaded through this, you know, changing, changing ourselves depending on the situation, like not, being, not having a consistent um, sense of ourselves. And then the idea that we think we already know is another thing that he, that I noticed kind of threading through. Um, it's useful to examine our presumptions so we can be more fully open to what is being offered instead of just the sliver that we can perceive or accept. So um, like what we think we already know is actually this obstacle to us actually learning anything. So that. And then another one of these ideas that threaded through is that spiritual life is a matter of a lifetime of discipline, devotion, and practice. Like that it, it's not a... It's not a passing thing. Like this is a, you know, this is a, and here we sit, you know, 40 years later, we can testify. <laughs> Again, he was speaking to his very young Sangha and saying things like, you're not going to do this in three months, you know, <laughs> and, you know, shocking people by that, that statement. But so spiritual life is a matter of a lifetime of discipline, de devotion, and practice. That's, um, that's a quote from Lee. And then the other thing was that he, in those days, he was using this, uh, he was using this word grace quite a bit. And I don't know for sure, but I would say in later years, maybe we talked, maybe we talked more about divine influence or benediction or the blessings of the lineage or something. But he, he was using the term grace throughout this, throughout this phase of time. So um, another idea threading through is that grace is available on the path. And here's a quote from him about grace, because what does that mean, right? I mean, it's, it's, a, little bit, <laughs> it's a little bit ephemeral for me. I, I did, like, do that thing and look it up in the dictionary. And, the, and, and there it said that grace was the love and mercy given to us by God because God desires us to have it, not necessarily because of anything we've done to earn it. Favor, free and undeserved help that God gives whether or not that's exactly what Lee meant, I don't know. But here's what Lee said about grace. Nothing ever really changes until it's changed and assumed by grace. We never change a thing. But it's very easy to fall into the kinds of traps that the mind will gladly surround itself with in order to distract us from having to be undone and from God. So grace is available on the path. 
is another one of these ideas that, that threaded through. So to go back to the, to the first um, trap of expectations, he said that we think people engaged in spiritual work ought to be perfect or ideal in their behavior and appearance. But people are, actually people are the same everywhere. <laughs> I actually literally remember that before I came around the community, I actually had it, had it in my mind that people would be like, without even questioning it, you know how you just sort of generate an image that you, like of what you're expecting to see or experience. And I had this image of people like in white robes. And <laughs> I mean, that seems so ridiculous, right? <laughs> but I, I really had this image of these people like almost like floating a little bit and just, you know, <laughs> all in white, you know, like a little light maybe around their heads or something. <laughs> so I remember actually being very um, happy to find that people were just ordinary, but I really did have this very, like really, really pretty silly idea because I had, you know, because we have no reference points. In this culture, I had nothing else in my life up to that point that would have given me any notion, any like genuine notion of what a sangha of spiritual practitioners would look like. So they definitely weren't floating, and you know, <laughs> and dressed in white, <laughs> um, like sort of a little bit misty down by the ground, just so you can see their feet. Um, you know, and and to like to illustrate this point of the way the mind kind of you know flip flops. You know, I, very, very quickly, I, I began to have a lot of, like, critical judgments of the Sangha. Here I was, just, you know, brand new. I didn't know nothing from nothing, and, you know, and I, I had a lot of, you know, I had, I had a lot of judgments in my head, going on in my head, which, you know, Lee talks about. He says, because we all have concepts of what it is to be spiritual, we expect people in the community to be humble, quiet, receptive, intelligent, well-meaning, compassionate, loving, gentle, peaceful, interested, charismatic, enthusiastic, and an even longer list of words. <laughs> so. so, you know, we definitely bring our preconceived ideas to the path. And, you know, and I would say now, you know, with the benefit of, of some time um, on the path and in doing sadhana, that the evidence of practice may not be outwardly evident. You know, it's, it's like you really kind of have to have the eyes to see that's kind of exactly what Lee was addressing, that if you look and you say, you know, he was talking about how people, like every group has all the same types in it, like people are the same everywhere, so it's not going to be any different within a spiritual community. So what's going on is beyond that. Again, you kind of, you know, kind of have, have to have eyes to see. And, and also he was talking again about grace, that like, that that's kind of, that whatever our character is, in a way, is all that's ever happening until or unless, like, grace is activated for us. And then when you start to mix it up with the community, and then it's, like, literally sort of like, he spoke about grace being kind of, like, activated as a force that could allow real change to occur. Another thing about expectations, you know, of other people, yes, but also of ourselves, this idea of, of the way that we kind of put our best foot forward both with the community, at least for a period of time. <laughs> Don't we give that one up? <laughs> but definitely with Lee, you know, I, I spent a lot of years doing that with him, like just trying to like look good. He definitely did enjoy if you were in a genuinely friendly and light space. And, but at the same time, he, you know, we, we all remember that he, that he frequently said to us, you hired me for something, and if you hide out like that, you know, that's directly antithi you know, an antithesis to what, you know, what it is you want me to do for you. So 
that you know that's very counterintuitive to ego because the idea is that you that you hide the things that are difficult or unresolved and you know and don't show them keep them close to the close to the breast i feel like that must be an element of tantra this idea that you should actually directly do the thing that goes against like kind of against nature you know against egoic nature anyway which is to hide what you know to hide what you consider unacceptable or ugly or you know or difficult so trying to put your you know best foot forward and meanwhile, like he said, you know, he says, he says here, when new people enter the community, they'll, they'll frequently pretend to be mellow, understanding, and considerate, while psychically engaging in vicious wars with other people in the group. Whenever someone's out of their sight, they'll criticize them, indict them with the worst crimes against appropriate behavior. So yeah, just that the way that we, we manage to kind of hold the, um, hold the dichotomy of what's really going on for us and then the veneer that we're, the veneer we're wanting to present, that the image we're invested in is part of, you know, was part of this idea of the trap of expectation. So it's not only like looking outward, but even, you know, the form as it relates to ourselves. And again, he, again, this idea of no center of gravity was, was he mentioned in, in relation to this, this trap of expectations about the form. I remember just having a personal interaction with Lee about this thing of, cha of being changeable, depending on the situation you're in. And it was when he, he pointed out to me that, this, that, I, that I, had, I was perfectly, I had this perfect imitation of the laugh of a woman in the Sangha that I was spending a lot of time with. I was really taken aback, and he didn't like—he didn't say it in a mean way or anything. He just like informed me, and I was like, I've never forgotten it. it was, and then, he, and he said this thing about you know, about ego being flattered by its reflection, and you know that we we imitate because we 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 unconsciously are looking to kind of curry favor with someone that we, you know, someone we want to curry favor with. So, um, so my imitation laugh. And um, my, not that the laugh was an imitation, it was, was not laughter, but it was like an imitation of this other person's laugh. Like really, exactly. And after he told me that, I began to notice it. Yeah, so I've definitely, you know, seen myself doing this, you know, in more modern times with my kids, you know, just trying to like, trying to be cool, you know, just like, you know, <laughs> I'm the mom. I'm not like another kid, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I, can I offer something that's a slightly yeah, different angle on that idea? You know, as I hear you talking about that tendency to have no center and to imitate, mm. um, there's one part of me that hears it as like this kind of um, embarrassing fact about ego. But there's another part of me these days that goes, you know, Gordon Neufeld talks about how that's an essential part of bonding. It's one of the ways that children connect and bond with one another, and other people bond with one another through imitation. Mm. In my own process, as I listen, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, these days I feel like I have to balance how I'm holding that description of the process of ego so that I'm not um, recoiling from it. And I'm going, oh, that's understandable. And it's unconscious because it's just this kind of like this mechanism, especially if we're still in some sort of child state within ourselves, that we're, we're doing that in order to feel safe. So it's just, a, it's just what's going through my mind as you're describing that. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's making me think of the way that um, we, when he was in the company of other teachers and their students, you know, he would speak the language of that teacher, you know, so, which would, could look like imitation, but um, it, I think it, it had its place, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, so we wouldn't want to just throw that out unexamined altogether. Yeah. I think there can be this just kind of shape-shifting quality with that, because when I think about that, I think about a survival strategy from childhood mm -hmm. and the necessity of having to adapt, and I don't know that I would call it imitation, but there was some kind of um, not having a center of gravity because if you had a center of gravity, you could get, there, there could be serious consequences. Yeah. In my family. Yeah. So you learn, or one can learn, that it's actually safer to not have a center of gravity because then you can just go with somebody else's flow. As a child, it was perfectly understandable why I did it, but as an adult, it's caused me a lot of pain because mm. I'm going, where am I mm. in all of this? And where is my center of gravity? It seems like what I'm, what I'm doing in any kind of work that I'm involved in, I'm learning to um, come into my own center of gravity. I think it's, it's also related to Ego's yeah. survival strategy, and I think it's the work of becoming an adult. If that's it was, if that was an adaptive strategy that you had to do to get by, it could be a lifetime of cultivating your own center of gravity. Yeah, agreed. Thank you. Yeah, I, like he, like I said, he really spoke about these in a pretty skeletal fashion. So I feel like that you really could, you know, you could really flesh these out <laughs> quite a bit more. So that, yeah, that's a very good point. And that thing of uh, the survival mode of, of ego was just like one of those ideas that seemed to thread through all the traps. You know, that that, 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 is, um, that is our mode of operating unless, unless or until we're operating from, you know, essence or, or um, you know, God reference or something like that. So this, this thing that I'm, I'm calling idolizing also goes along with this idea of having no center of gravity. Um, so here's a quote from Lee um, in this talk. The average person is highly impressed with anyone who they think is minimally more of anything than they are. <laughs> more attractive, athletic, intelligent, compassionate, turned to the God-man. We tend to make other people our heroes because we're so impressionable, we don't realize that everybody's the same. If someone does one thing that's appropriate and 99 things that are not, we will, we will make that person our hero because we've seen the one thing that they've done that's appropriate and disregarded all the other things. And I would say again, you know, that, that as strongly as we can be in that mode, we can also flip. So this idea that the mind is a binary computer, like black and white, good and bad, right and wrong. And so we can be on one side of the coin and, and pretty easily flip over to the other. You know, later on, Lee talks about that as being the source of so many failed marriages. You know, that we, we connect with and only see certain things or even one certain thing and, you know, commit to this person. And then as the other, as the other facets of, you know, of them reveal themselves and, you know, then we're, he says, all we're left with is animosity. <laughs> so, 
And again, I would say that that's just a dynamic, too, that has to be worked with ongoingly, definitely in a marriage, but even in friendship, you know, that things come up and, you know, hard things happen and we have judgments about people and, and you know, this idea of accepting, accepting the whole person. I, I won't read this thing, but I've got this wonderful quote from Trungpa, which I've just gotten so much mileage out of, and it's, it's, a, it's from his book, um, Ocean of Dharma, that's quotes for 365 days of the year, and there's one of those in there called All-Encompassing Friendship, which I guess is a translation of the word Maitri. He just talks about how when you become friends with someone, you become, you know, the, like true friendship is to be friends with the whole person, so not just the parts that you like. So there's always going to be, you know, what he called like a destructive aspect of, of relationship with someone and a creative aspect, and that, you know, that, a, that true friendship is to be able to hold the whole picture. It's not that you, like, love the destructive elements, but you recognize that that's, that's part and parcel of that person, and you're not going to, you like, to pick and choose is not truly friendship. He, he talked about the meeting of two egos as being like an irresistible force meets an immovable object. And I just loved this teaching of his, like he, that the force is identical in everyone, no matter what it looks like on the surface. You know, like we, we language that, oh, this person has a strong ego, this one has a weak ego, whatever. He said there really, there really is no, like there's no winners and losers and it's kind of a level playing field when you're talking about like ego, when it's, when it's the meeting of two egos. Not that that's all that's ever going on, but when that's happening, that it's an irresistible force meeting an immovable object. Yeah. Oh yeah, so he says, when two people have a relationship in any fashion or form, communicate positively or negatively, agree or disagree, what you have under all circumstances, unless they are spiritual slaves moved by grace or turned towards a God-man, is one force trying to survive, meeting an identical force trying to survive. Both are trying to win to avoid losing. The meaning of the two is always identical. There's never an imbalance. I have found this actually directly useful since, you know, since we were working with this material. And like just to remember when I'm having conflict of any kind that in reality, like in my mind, you know, there's my side of things and like, you know, my point of view, which of course is right, you know. But, um, but the reality is that it is exactly what he's describing here. So like maybe this sounds like bad news in a way, but in another way it's not bad news. It's like if you understand this, you know, if I understand this, about this identical force, then like I, it seems like there's actually the possibility to kind of just sidestep the, like Aikido, you know, just like step to the side and, <laughs> you know, kind of like, like pierce the apparent presentation of reality, you know, knowing that no matter what it looks like, that's actually what's happening, you know, like when there's disagreements, you know, when there's whatever, you know, different points of view about things. Um, that it's okay because that's all that's 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 what's actually going on. You know, <laughs> it's just all we have all these facets of um, the egoic perspective, kind of you know, sometimes colliding with one another. So then, this next one is mistaking an, uh, an intellectual grasp or right behavior for attainment. Words only point to the truth of the Dharma. The activity of practice only invites the possibility to truly inhabit the form. Those are my words. You know, we have to begin somewhere. This is where we all start. You know, we all just start with the ideas and with the form. But here's, here's what Lee says, always, you know, always one to 
put a point on it. <laughs> Without sympathy to the law on all levels, on all of the levels, thinking, moving, feeling. Having appropriate form is no different than the way we've always lived our lives, which has been to shift the form depending upon who is at the other end of the interaction. And again, this idea that we, you know, what we think we know is actually, is actually an obstacle to us really being open to what's being offered. He kind of characterized that as being a posture of ego to feel like I'm going to be the one to, you know, attain <laughs> enlightenment in just three short months, you know? <laughs> or, you know, even though no one else has, you know, <laughs> you know, kind of inflated sense of sense of ourselves can lead us to mistake like an intellectual grasp for an actual bodily knowing. And I, I would venture to say we've all experienced this over time in our practice. And I think that he didn't say this, that ego will create the counterfeit to fend off the real thing, but also just because it's, it's easier. That, that's sort of like part of ego. ego's job, right, is to figure out what it is that you have to do and to make it as easy for you as possible, which is why we can drive, you know, 80 miles and not remember too much about the route because we were kind of on autopilot. And did we really need to pay attention to the route? No, probably not. So <laughs> that was like a correct functioning of ego. But ego just does that with everything. So you have a genuine experience and then ego will like try to like duplicate it, basically counterfeit it to make it easier for you. So you don't have keep being real. Which trap are we on right now? This is the one of, um, <laughs> just gotta keep those traps straight, mistaking an intellectual grasp, oh, yeah. like for, yeah. for attainment or kind of for real understanding. I think that's really an issue if you are, can articulate the dilemma. Yeah. And if you can speak it. Yeah. It's not the equivalent of living it. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's been interesting for me since Lee's gone just to, um, to come to some understanding of why it was that he so often wanted to just do things with us. Because it's one thing to talk about the ideas, but it's another thing to actually just do a project together or take a trip or whatever. You know, he's always looking to kind of give us situations in which we could work on integrating the ideas that we had, you know, with, with like reality. It was like an opportunity to... Yeah, to integrate and kind of digest all the, all the, you know, ideas and learning we could have in our heads, which, you know, we could mistakenly think that we were so good at, at the teaching or something. <laughs> yeah. The whole practice of self-observation is to bring awareness to how we are, how we speak, and how we act. And I go, when there's a level of unconsciousness being played out without a good friend or without a guide or someone to point to that thing, it's like it doesn't exist to us. So it's not something we can self-observe. What about all of the pie that I don't know I don't know? Who is, who is going to be the one to, to compassionately point to that for me and say, oh, did you ever look at this, Elise, or from this angle? But that comes up for me sometimes. If I just trust that I'll get what I need, and then all of that that I don't see, uh, maybe it's not necessary to see it. 
I mean, it de you know, definitely is still the case that any any kind of group projects that we do, even two people can be the group. Um, there is definitely group work available. <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> uh, like, for instance, four of us started a bridge group in town, and man, when we first started, it was unexpectedly intense and difficult, even sometimes just in mood, not even necessarily anything happening outwardly. But um, we all sort of stuck with it, and then it kind of smoothed out, but it's still just a pretty good domain for for work. But I, I don't know what the answer to your question is, but that's just what pops into my mind. Is That's available, and it seems like that is a way that we, you know, that we get um, exposed, as it were, you know? Yeah, so. Uh, and a sto another story for me was just that, you know, over all the years of cooking in this, in this community, at a certain point, while Lee was still alive, but in these later years, I, I, I experienced that there was a shift for me out of my head, like I realized that my, my head was unduly involved in the cooking. When you're running a whole kitchen full of people for a celebration meal for 120 or something, you really, you really kind of need to be in your body. And, and moreover, if you are, it's fun. And so I started to see that I, that I, I, I was having more of a kind of a flow. And when you're, you know, for me in that flow, I could pay attention to more things naturally in a way I couldn't, like with my, my mental power. <laughs> I just remember being up in the kitchen in Lee's house and just, I suddenly realized that it, a shift had happened and I no longer was like centered in my head when I was cooking and it was quite, it was quite delightful to actually be in the kitchen and just like this thing's bubbling over here and this thing's getting chopped here and just like, and just like keeping that all going, like going forward was really just this wonderful, this wonderful dance. And um, I mean, I always did like to cook, but there was like this, this kind of tortured side to it that, that had to do with, I think the, you know, the insertion of the mental where it didn't belong. It's not like you don't have to think when you're cooking because you got to measure things and, if you're expanding a recipe by 10, you, know, <laughs> you really have to think. So it's not like you don't need your mind, but the essence of the task itself is like a moving center thing. That, you know, to me is, was an example of, you know, of something, something <laughs> taking root in the body as opposed to, you know, just being, um, being a concept. So again, there's so much more that could be said about that idea of, of mistaking an intellectual grasp for attainment or for the thing itself. But we will move on now. So then the next thing is this idea of thinking we're a special case. Yeah, and the way he described this was on this level that we're speaking about, traps in the path. He says that, um, that the meeting of ego and grace is always identical because ego is, is always identical. Here's how he says it. When ego is confronted with grace, the response is always the same because ego's mechanisms are always the same. Yeah, it's just important to recognize that we, you know, that, that we're still being driven by survival even in spiritual life. It becomes more sophisticated, but it's, you know, it's still operating. You know, he says, it's important to recognize that one's approach to the community is founded on the same dilemma that motivates the worldly search for attainment, survival, and fulfillment. You know, it could, it could just be that we, until we're sort of disabused of this egoic idea that we're a special case, we maybe we can't really get that we are a special case, you know, when, when in terms of like our uniqueness as, as a human, you know, and essentially.
So this is about survival. This is kind of a sort of a, a, a funny view of, you know, quote from Lee. Because we're alive and have survived up to this point, we believe subconsciously that we're experts on survival. Ego interprets everything that we've ever done as substantiating survival. <laughs> All right, so uh, just two more to go. This one about peak experience or avoiding functional life. Yeah, he was just saying how it was inevitable that one would experience, you know, on the path that people will experience blisses and, you know, and, and bhavas and like that. And that, there, you know, there's, there's this danger of becoming fascinated with those and imagining that they're somehow more important than just ordinary functional life and, and practice, you know, life level practice. And, um, you know, that in reality, it's all, you know, it's, it's, all the, it's all a field, it's all the field of practice and it's all like sacred life, you know, no matter what it, you know, what it might look like. So here's a quote from him. We want to realize that no particular experience can be equated with God life. It's just as necessary to wash the dishes, take care of our personal hygiene, and dress appropriately as it is to be in samadhi 12 hours a day. One is no more important than the other. So then he also wasn't like dissing that either, but you know, just to like, like the, this idea of balance. Yeah, that we not get, you know, that we not get captivated by a glory position or a good meditation or a blissful phase of sadhana and lose sight of just basic practice and grounded everyday activities. And those stories about the Zen monastery where the, where the abbot is naming the, you know, is going to name the successor. And there's one I found where, you know, he, the, the abbot asked them all to write a poem. It was like time for him to step down and to name this, you know, name the successor. So they were supposed to, whoever thought that they, you know, wanted to be the successor would write a poem. And so the guy that everybody thought was, you know, the most likely candidate writes this well, kind of well thought out poem and Everyone just assumes this guy's a shoe in But then overnight, like by the next morning, another poem appears. I had this story somewhere. The next morning, another poem appeared on the wall in the hallway, apparently written during the dark hours of the night. It stunned everyone with its elegance and profundity, but no one knew who the author was. So, of course, we know who this was, right? It's like the kitchen the kitchen monk who like pounded the rice, you know? <laughs> and when the others found out, speaking of ego, <laughs> they planned to like, they planned to like kill him, you know? <laughs> you can't be the one. So the, you know, the abbot like um, spirits him away, and, you know, gives him, passes the mantle and gets him out of there. So he's out of harm's way. But you know, it's just this idea of, uh, that, uh, the guy that pounds the rice, you know, could be having a more profound experience of his spiritual life than the, the important monks who are, you know, are meditating and, and practicing in a, in a way that looks more, you know, looks more important or, or um, significant. So. Yeah. yeah. I think the teaching of spiritual materialism mm -hmm. is so relevant to be able to understand the difference between a true, sublime, mystical, pure spiritual experience and the tendency for ego to want to take it and put it you know, another notch in the belt of ego. I think that's a key point. 
Yeah, thank you. So then we just have the last one, which was, is needing approval. <laughs> that one is like, I don't know, for me, is one of the most, needing approval for our work was one of the most vital ones when I read these, read this, uh, you know, this idea that we, we need to bring strength to our work, not weakness, and that it's better to be less than perfect but committed and responsible than to look good as a veneer over the need for praise and strokes. It seems to me that getting over this needing approval is just as part of growing up. It's kind of like to, to come to know your own worth and believe in yourself and not have to be told. So here's, here's a quote from Lee. There's the tendency to assume and feel that if we aren't told how we're doing, we're not doing it right and need to do something different. I encourage this pitfall in people who are doing beautiful spiritual work by not praising them just to see how much strength they're bringing to their work. Many people find that they're doing work that's highly accessible to grace, and yet they don't, when they don't get complimented for it, they'll try something else, which is actually getting in their own way. It's very necessary to realize that we need to bring strength to sadhana, not weakness. In this part, this next part I really like, the appropriate form, there's that word appropriate again, approached from a position of weakness and a need for praise, approval, and to be stroked is not nearly as effective a sadhana as inappropriate work approached from a position of strength, responsibility, and ownership. So in other words, he would rather, you, he would rather we made mistakes <laughs> and like really stood in our, stood in our work than, you know, than to be like kind of fawning and, you know, and, and seeking approval you know, and trying to like do the right thing all the time. Can you just say a little more about what you think he meant about strong and weak? I don't know. I just read that as being better to be less than perfect but committed and responsible. Yeah, I mean, maybe we could really say just to be kind of to be a grown-up, you know, instead of a child in relationship to him and to our work. But, you know, with regard to this, I remember this occasion when it was Acker Night and... Uh, the band was playing at this certain place downtown, and he was doing that thing where he was having people come up to sing. He, he called me up there, and it was one of those nights where I felt like I, I knew that I really did what he was always looking for, which, which was just take the mic and just, like, let it rip. And it was really, it was great. Like, I felt really good about it. And, you know, he had me, you could tell when he liked it because he'd let you do more than one verse. He'd say, keep going, you know? <laughs> so I, I think I sang the whole song. And then, must have been the Darshan on the following Sunday, that he, I was sitting there and I was sitting right next to another person that he had called up that night that, that sang. And at a certain point during the darshan, he started just talking up that person, like just to the, to the heavens about how they had, how they had, you know, sung when he'd called them up. So at first I was just kind of astonished, like I probably just had my mouth hanging open. And then you get this like sort of unreal thought of maybe he can't see me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he can see me. <laughs> and, um, and then suddenly it just kind of switched for me. It just was like, I know what happened. Like I know what happened and I'm not going to. I'm not going to take the bait. Anyway, this idea of, you know, bringing, bringing strength to your work, like you, you could say about that, that gosh, that's really like mean and maybe directly stepping on like a, a particular corn that I had, you know, to, to behave that way. But it seems like his sense of timing, and I don't think he like consciously planned these things, was such as that there was always the, there was always the possibility that it might be just the, just the thing that was needed to kind of like <laughs> push you into, you know, some other view. And, and it did, you know, it did. I...
I don't even know if he was doing that consciously, but I just was like, I know what happened and I'm not gonna, like, I'm not gonna be a slave to having him reinforce that for me. So that was a really, that was a good outcome. So thank you for listening to the traps on the path. <laughs> and on that note, Jai Guru.